Contemporaneous legal discourse is often paralyzed with substantive arguments that both oppose and favor a particular question of law from seemingly equally merited standpoints. Illegality is a podcast that delves into often conflicting but equally incontrovertible aspects of legal discussion and provides listeners the opportunity to know all schools of thought governing legal issues from the Journal and Seminar Committee of the Department of Law, University of Calcutta and co-hosted by Yatra Chakraborty and Shomrit Doshin. Hello everyone. Welcome to Illegality, the weekly podcast of the Journal and Seminar Committee, Department of Law, University of Calcutta, co-hosted by Shomrit Doshen and I, Atrio Chakraborty, where we delve into the merits of conflicting arguments in legal discourse. In this episode, committee general members Ahana Bagh and Dhiman Banerjee will conduct an analysis into the use of police brutality as a means of enforcing the countrywide lockdown the legal and judicial sanctions involved therein and the repercussions of the usage of colonial laws in combating modern day pandemics additionally the speakers have attempted to outline a specific road map towards the lifting of lockdown we hope that the listeners will enjoy this episode and we will be back soon with the second season of illegality Police brutality as a means to enforce lockdown and analysis. An introduction. A government will not relinquish power once it has obtained it. By Dan Hale. In order to fight the notorious and highly contagious COVID-19, a 21 days nationwide lockdown was announced on 24th of March 2020. The nation had a mere 4 hours notice to prepare for the measures that was rightfully dubbed by the New York Times the most severe step taken anywhere in the war against the coronavirus this was held by many as a necessary means to prevent the spread of the virus yet it is safe to say a great fraction of the population was caught unaware it would be folly to presume that the administration had no knowledge of this fraction though more often than not concern regarding the well-being of these groups are swept under the carpet but it was particularly difficult to ignore millions of migrant laborers crowding in train terminals bus stops walking home barefoot living in huddled unsanitary conditions and plainly flouting the center's directives it is beyond a shred of doubt that laborers and daily wage workers were driven not by disobedience but by desperation yet in the eyes of the government they violated the lockdown the lockdown has to be imposed the administration looked to its understaffed and overworked police force india find itself at the tail end of police to population ratio around the world which is 192 policemen on 1 lakh population critically lower than the united nations recommendation of a minimum 222 policemen to 1 lakh population This force was entrusted to ensure 1.3 billion people remain in their homes at all times for a period of 21 days which was again extended to 39 days and further extended to 53 days albeit with a few relaxations in the last phase I would again like to point out a significant percentage of this population was stranded in the true sense of the word 
The laborers were away from their homes, families, and resources. They worked daily wage jobs in faraway cities, and with, sudden, with the sudden enclosure of enterprises, were left without income, sustenance, or shelter. With trains cancelled and buses stopped as per government directives, they had no option left but to walk home. 22 people as of 29th March 2020 had perished on their way home, killed by starvation, exhaustion, road traffic accidents, and even a forest fire. An article is published in the Hindu records 310 deaths due to the lockdown. It is of utmost importance that the human cost of the lockdown is not forgotten when its success is calculated in the years to come. I have tried to make it abundantly clear that many in this subcontinent and other third world countries do not have the luxury to quarantine themselves and stay home. Many in this subcontinent do not have home to stay in. These masses driven down the road in search of food and shelter often face the short end of the stick. On multiple occasions, they have been harassed, beaten, and driven back from the state borders after miles of walking barefoot. These measures taken by the police force are justified as it tries to impose the lockdown according to the center's textbook directives. Yet the insensitivity and brazenness of the manner in which the force has risen to the situation in the face of such a crisis has presented itself as a graver problem. Legal Sanctions for Police Actions in the Time of a Pandemic The lockdown has been imposed according to the Disaster Management Act of 2005. The act was drafted and passed after the tsunami of 2004 that killed almost 10,000 people in India alone. It will be interesting to note that the COVID crisis of 2020 was the very first occasion when this act was imposed. And that rightfully begs the question, did India have a dearth of disasters until this pestilence? The official website of the National Disaster Management Authority provides a list of 21 disasters after 2004 including the Maharashtra floods that claimed 1,094 lives on the July of 2005 and the Uttarakhand flash floods that claimed 4,094 lives. The list, however, stops at 2014, hence leaving out the 2018 and 2019 Kerala floods and Cyclone Fanny. The answer to the question why an act specifically tailor-made to handle any, in quote, catastrophe, mishap, calamity, or grave occurrence in any area arising from natural or man-made causes, end quote, even when it resulted, in quotes, in substantial loss of life or human suffering or damage to and destruction of property, end quotes, wasn't used when it was most required is not under the purview of this podcast. Yet, it is critical to understand why the Centre implemented the Act now of all times. A natural disaster is a catastrophe that lasts for, for a very short period of time and affects only a part of a country at once. On the other hand, a pandemic covers the length and breadth of the nation and lasts much longer allowing the centre to gain absolute control in a national scale. Predictively, 
the government has a different narrative. According to former NDMA vice chairperson MS Reddy, in quotes, the invocation of the act will ensure better coordination between the centre and the states and create health infrastructure to cope with the community spread if it happens very fast. The National Disaster Management Act has more clarity than the Epidemic Diseases Act 1897, a colonial-era law. The lockdown has been imposed under Sections 6, Subsection 2, Subsubsection I and Section 10, Subsection 2, Subsubsection I. These sections respectively allow the National Authority and the Executive Committee to take measures for prevention, mitigation and preparedness for dealing with a life-threatening disaster situation and to evaluate the preparedness at all governmental levels and give directions for enhancing said preparedness. In simpler terms, it allows the national authority to exercise any and all powers deemed beneficial towards the preparedness for a catastrophe or a calamity. This act grants the centre the power and privilege to bypass bureaucratic process and act as it would in a state of an emergency. Hence, it is a direct sanction to the state machinery to control the population and keep them off the streets in any manner or form deemed suitable. The Epidemic Diseases Act 1897 further bolsters this sanction with Section 4, which guarantees that no suit or legal proceeding shall lie against any person for anything done or in good faith intended to be done under this Act. Checks and Balances A leading Hindi newspaper Amar Ujala reported on 27th March that a driver of a pickup van in Bihar carrying potatoes was shot in the leg after he refused to bribe the policeman. The policemen have been reportedly suspended. This case is not an isolated incident. Social media has been flooded with closed-circuit camera footages and videos of police personnel harassing and beating citizens. Vishwa Prasad, a senior Hyderabad police official, said in an interview with the Quads, When it's such a massive exercise, there could be some isolated instances of violence here and there. Milk Basket, an online delivery service for the delivery of essentials, was forced to dump 15,000 litres of milk and 10,000 kilograms of vegetables. K. Ganesh, a promoter of online platforms like Big Basket, Fresh Menu and Portia Medical, stated on NDTV, Over the last few days, policemen have abused, assaulted and one, in one case even arrested a delivery agent, leading to huge disruption in their activities. All the above examples were of people and services authorised during the lockdown. The treatment that has been meted out to daily wage labourers and migrant workers have been far less savoury. In a shocking video posted by a police officer, he was seen sanitising lattes. The caption read, Full Tayari. This tweet was later deleted. Telangana Chief Minister K.C. Rao even threatened to pass shoot-at-sight orders. The use of lathis to control crowds and enforce lockdown comes to the police force almost as a reflex. The charge is the first measure. 
This ingrained tendency harkens back to India's colonial past. The ease with which the lati is used and with no logical distinction made between the requirement of an individual and a group of willful miscreants three quarters of a century after India's independence is disturbing to say the least. It begs the question if at all there is a legal check to the use of this coercive power. The Act Governing the Police Force of India was imposed on 1861, exactly four years after the Sipoy Mutiny or the First War of Independence. It is safe to presume that the sole purpose of this Act was to control the masses and prevent future uprisings at all costs. It was a weapon for the colonial rulers and has sadly remained so. The legal mechanism in place structured to govern the use of force by the police is enshrined in section 129 of the criminal code of criminal procedure section 129 lays down the situations where the use of force is legally acceptable it allows the police and armed forces to use force for in court maintenance of public order and tranquility it empowers them to use force to disperse an unlawful assembly or an assembly of more than five people only after the assembly has been ordered to disperse by an executive magistrate or the officer in charge of a police station and the assembly has willfully refused to disperse. Then, as per the specific order of the said officers, can a police personnel exercise force? Judicial Directives The above-mentioned legal principle of Section 129 has been elucidated and emphasized in the High Courts of Delhi and Haryana by laying down three concrete conditions that need to be satisfied before force is used. The first is, there should be an assembly of five or more people who are likely to cause violence or a breach of peace. Second, the said assembly has to be ordered to disperse. And third, Despite receiving the orders, the assembly does not disperse. Only then can force be used against the said assembly. Thus, the incidences of loan individuals and service providers being targeted without any preceding order or notice is in clear violation of the law. There are several instances where the apex court had remarked on the excessive use of force by police officials. In Anita Thakur and others versus government of Jammu and Kashmir and others, it was observed that the use of excessive force by police personnel results in violation of human rights and dignity. In Ramlila Maidan incident versus Home Secretary of India and others, the Supreme Court took clear cognizance of video evidences and photographs presented and duly noted, in quotes, all the erring police officers slash personnel who have indulged in brick batting have resorted to lati charge and excessive use of tear gas shells upon the crowd have exceeded their authority or have acted in a manner not permissible under the prescribed procedures, rules or the standing orders and their actions have an element of criminality. This action shall be taken against the officer slash personnel irrespective of what ranks they hold in, their, in the hierarchy of the police. End quotes. The current situation 
is very similar to the above mentioned instance incidences where undue and excessive force had been used and as is its nature history repeats itself continued use of a colonial law and its repercussions a 2018 study conducted by the center for study of development societies csds stated that less than 25% of indians trusted the police researchers amya bokil and nikita sonavane of the criminal justice and police accountability project in bhopal madhya pradesh noted in quotes the ethos of everyday policing in india rests on the subjugation of marginalized communities the common cause csds survey also brought a blatant and unjustified prejudice to light half of all police personnel believe muslims are likely to commit crimes and scheduled castes and scheduled tribes are in quotes naturally prone to committing crimes such ingrained and unjustified ideas thoughts and beliefs have rendered the relationship between the police and the citizens colonial and feudal however this prejudice naturally seems to be restricted to people without much influence or say hours after the declaration of the lockdown when the uttar pradesh chief minister was seen at a religious gathering in ayodhya the law enforcement turned a blind eye and the hyderabad bureau chief of the hindu newspaper ravi reddy received several apologies after being assaulted on 25th of march this biased attitude is prevalent in the force and can be held responsible for the distance between the citizens and the police force the economist released an article in 2018 titled politicians pets the shortcomings of india's police are not entirely their fault an excerpt from the article reads One state's police chief recently asked officers to rank their top 3 problems. In ascending order, they were poor communications inside the force, lack of manpower or resources, and meddling politicians. The last issue renders the police force to a mere instrument and ma- and means of exercise political will. The archaic police act is ambiguous when it comes to the superintendence of police force as per the law both the center and the state exercise control over the police in one form or another often the two powers work against each other and this impedes the democratic independent prudent functioning of the force moreover there is no mechanism in place for registering complaints against the police personnel even though both the second administrative reform commission and the supreme court have recognized the need for an independent watchdog body to enquire into the cases of reported wrongdoings a 2011 commonwealth human rights initiative report aptly summarizes the situation in quotes it is widely known that the major problem that plagues policing in india is illegitimate political interference in every aspect of police work this is aggravated by the absence of mechanisms to monitor and evaluate police performance end quotes the lack of patience when it comes to dealing with masses may also result from sheer workload the 2018 report of the economist pointed out despite the general idea of laziness the indian police forces actually overworked it said 
A national survey in 2014 found that 90% of officers worked longer than 8 hours a day and 73% got no more than one day off per week. Researchers say that the recent introduction of 8-hour shifts in the state of Kerala and for the city police in Mumbai has radically improved morale. Another aspect that explains the volatile temperament of the police force is simple lack of training. In an interview with the Quartz, Ashish Nandi remarked, There is something drastically wrong with their training. The police think that only beating up people is the answer and using violence is the only thing they know. In 2018, the Times of India reported that 119 out of 122 Indian police service officials failed to clear one or more subjects, in spite of which they were allowed to join the force. The batch had a total of 136 officers with 14 foreign police officers and 133 of them failed in one or more subjects, including the Indian Penal Code and the Code of Criminal Procedure. To summarize, the top officials of the police force are overworked and lack the knowledge of the very basic workings of criminal law. The recruitment of lower-level officials from constable to sub-inspector is based on the physical prowess of the trainees and skills like law, forensics, financial frauds are largely ignored. The process of enlisting police personnel clearly points out the centre's intention of assembling a medieval brute force and not a logical machinery of law enforcement suited for a democratic nation. Until now, there have been not one, but six committees set up by the government to recommend police reforms, and all of these committees have suggested major reforms after years of research and investigation. These committees include the Gore Committee on Police Training 1971-73, the National Police Commission 1977-81, the Riverio Committee on Police Reforms 1998, the Padmanabhaiya Committee on Police Reforms 2000, the Group of Ministers on National Security 2000-2001, and finally, the Malimat Committee on Reforms of Criminal Justice System 2001-2003. None of the recommendations have been implemented or even considered. The Apex Court released a landmark judgment on 2006 in the case of Prakash Singh and others versus Union of India and others, making a seven-point directive to the state and central governments. An excerpt of the judgment reads, There is convergence of views on the need to have a. State Security Commission at state level, b. Transparent procedure for appointment of police chief and the desirability of giving him a minimum fixed tenure. c. Separation of investigation work from law and order. and d. A new police act which should reflect the democratic aspirations of the people. The directives have yet to see the light of day. The apparent disregard for the recommendations highlights the government's refusal to relinquish control of the police force. The obscurity of the police act allows the political stakeholders to mould and twist the force according to their political will, and this feudal network satisfies their needs splendidly. Therefore, the people in power take no active initiative to change the present scenario, however flawed it may be. 
and given the dire circumstances of the pandemic it would seem the government had has yet again used this crisis as an opportunity to seize control by the use of fear and excessive force so we return to the quote we started this episode with a government will not relinquish power once it has obtained it the global perspective emergence of a pattern on 27th april 2020 the united nations warned that countries disregarding the rule of law in the name of fighting the pandemic may spark a human rights disaster emergency powers should not be a weapon governments can wield to squash dissent control the population and even perpetuate their time in power united nations high commissioner for human rights Michelle Bachelet observed in her statement that denounced shootings and detentions without being specific. She urged the nations to refrain from violating fundamental rights under the guise of an emergency. An official from her office released a list of 15 countries where the allegations of police brutality were most troubling. He added that there are probably a dozen others that could have been highlighted. The countries featured on this list are Nigeria, Kenya, South Africa, the Philippines, Sri Lanka, El Salvador, the Dominican Republic, Peru, Honduras, Jordan, Morocco, Cambodia, Uzbekistan, Iran, and Hungary. Nations across the globe have reported cases of detainment, arrests, and use of coercive force. Philippines tops the list. for 120,000 individuals apprehended in a single month as of 16th april nigerian police had killed 18 individuals for violating lockdown while the reported covid-19 death toll in the country remained at 12 in kenya within 2 weeks of the curfew the police had killed more people than the illness one of the victims was a 13 year old boy who was shot dead while he watched from his own balcony kenyan president uhuru kenyatta apologized for the violence on april 2nd in an, in attempting to clear out crowded illegal settlements the ugandan police in their own statement reported that they had broken down doors and dragged out settlers injuring around 30 men and women in the process The Ugandan police denounced the action as quote outrageous and made it known that 10 police officers and 6 military personnel had been arrested. In South Africa, United Nations received reports of police using rubber bullets, tear gas and whips to enforce the lockdown in impoverished neighborhoods. In one case, an officer and a security guard were arrested after they shot a man dead while enforcing lockdown. I cannot help but notice a pattern. India, Nigeria, Kenya, South Africa and Uganda have been colonies under the European rule for a considerable period of time and the police force among other coercive powers exercised in these colonies and the laws governing them were a gift of the British and the French. These laws were structured not to enforce law and order among citizens but to specifically control indigenous populations deemed inferior to themselves 
these instruments designed to facilitate colonial occupation of a country and substantiate economic gains have been maintained by the post-colonial democratic governments of these nations. Is it so that after decades of independence, the lawmakers of these nations have chosen to preserve a colonial instrument to further their own designs and continue to oppress their own countrymen? Or do these incidences of violence have no connection whatsoever with the colonial past of these nations? Let us know your stance on the matter. A parting note. Under no circumstances can police brutality and the use of coercive force become the instrument of choice when it comes to disciplining citizens of a democratic country. Normalizing police brutality by using comical renditions of it and ignoring the humiliation it causes the victim is blunt and insensitive. The use of excessive force by the police shouldn't yield humor and be deemed acceptable nay necessary. It should enrage every citizen of a democratic republic. In his autobiography, Jawaharlal Nehru writes of Lala Lajput Rai's untimely demise. Those were the days when we were not used to lati charges by the police. Our sensitiveness had not been blunted by repeated brutality. To find that even the greatest of our leaders, the foremost and most popular man in Punjab, could be so treated seemed little short of monstrous, and dull anger spread all over the country, especially in North India. A brief history of pandemics. There have been as many plagues as wars in history, yet always plagues and wars take people equally by surprise. Albert Camus. Fifty years ago, two reputed U.S. universities closed their infectious disease departments believing the field of their study was over and would not yield any new results. That information makes Camus' The Plague terrifyingly accurate. Diseases have plagued human civilization since the beginning of time. In many ways than one, they have drastically changed human lives in their wake, often ushering in new eras and incredible advances in science and technology, and decimating millions. Humanity suffers and is duly humbled for some time. Then, naturally our hubris gets the better of us and we forget to revere the plague for what it is. The first recorded pandemic was the Plague of Athens in 430 BCE. The outbreak happened during the Peloponnesian War when Athens was under the siege of Sparta. The plague killed almost a quarter of the Athenian population and weakened Athens' hold over the Greek city-states. The Greeks were able to record the plague as they had a developed writing system that was not lost to history. The virulence of the disease killed off its host before it could spread further and hence its spread could be arrested. Despite the vivid descriptions of the plague, the causative agent was a thing of mystery to science, elevating the plague of Athens to almost an elusive myth. But in January 2006, a group of scientists from the University of Athens studied teeth, studied the teeth recovered from the mass grave under the city and confirmed the killer to be typhoid bacteria. The second recorded pestilence appears during the reign of the Romans. 
The Antonine Plague reared its ugly head during the rule of Marcus Aurelius from 165 AD. It is believed that the plague was brought by soldiers returning from the east. It decimated almost 5 million people and possibly set the stage for the decline of the Roman Empire. A hundred years later, it was the plague of Cyprian, often accounted as the second outbreak of the Antonine Plague, killed 5,000 Romans in a single day. The first recorded outbreak of the Bubonic Plague was the Plague of Justinian. This plague swept across the Mediterranean from 541 AD to 750 AD, killing half of Europe's population. According to the Byzantine chronicler Procopius of Caesarea, at its height, the plague killed 10,000 people a day in the city of Constantinople. The plague, Yersinia pestis, traveled from China and northeast India to the Great Lakes of Africa via trade routes and specially grain ships and then was introduced to Europe. The Black Death requires no introduction. The plague of Justinian had returned with vengeance after 700 years. It followed the same pattern and was brought to Europe via trade routes and the Italian merchants fleeing the Crimean War. The plague killed an estimated 20 to 30 million uni- individuals in a span of six years. A third of Europe's population was decimated. The plague stayed in Europe till the 18th century and more than a hundred outbreaks had rattled the European economy and the existing feudal system. The last outbreak was recorded in 1665 to 1666, famously known as the Great Plague of London, and killed 20% of its population. 1855 Yunnan, China saw the re-emergence of the bubonic plague commonly known as the third plague pandemic. This outbreak killed more than 12 million people in India and China, 10 million hailing from India. The fatality led to the creation of the Epidemic Diseases Act of 1897. The act was designed to provide the British with absolute power to control the situation and the unspecific nature of it can raise legitimate doubts about their intentions. A scholar mentioned in his notes, the act was directed more against the natives than the plague bacillus. John Woodburn, while tabling the Epidemic Diseases Bill, himself noted that the measures were extraordinary but necessary and people must, quote, trust the discretion of the executive in grave and critical circumstances. The recent most pandemic was the influenza pandemic of 1918 or the Spanish flu. Unlike most influenza outbreaks where the oldest and the youngest usually fall victim, the flu of 1918 killed a significant number of young adults. The flu infected half a billion people around the world and killed anywhere between 20 to 100 million people. The World War I helped the virus spread and mutate at an accelerated rate. Soldiers, weakened by stress and repeated chemical attacks, made them susceptible to infection. The Spanish flu was dangerously virulent, with a mortality rate of 2.5% compared to previous flu epidemics with rates lower than 0.1%. The death rate in India was incredibly high, with 50 deaths per 1,000 infected. The Journal of American Medical Association wrote in its final edition of 1918. 
and I quote, The 1918 has gone, a year momentous as the termination of the most cruel war in the annals of human race, a year which marked the end, at least for a time, of man's destruction of man. Unfortunately, a year in which developed a most fatal infectious disease causing the hundred, death of hundreds of thousands of human beings. Medical science for four and one half years devoted itself to putting men on the firing line and keep them there. Now it must turn with its whole might to combating the greatest enemy of all, infectious disease. Infectious Diseases and the Society Malaria had existed for antiquity, but in 1623, after ten cardinals succumbed to the tropical disease, Pope Urban VII ordered the search for the cure of malaria, and in 1631, quinine was identified as the key agent in the bark of chicona trees that protected the natives in Peru. This saved millions of lives, and still does. In the 1880s, Tunisian economy was depleted after several epidemics of cholera and the typhoid fever. This led to French occupation and colonization of the country. After the arrival of Columbus to the Caribbean islands, the Native American population was decimated as they had no immunity against measles, smallpox and influenza, leading to a near extinction of the tradition, culture and way of life. An article in the Journal of Economic Perspectives says, Although we may never be, we may never know the exact magnitude of the de- depopulation, it is estimated that upwards of 80 to 95 percent of the Native American population was decimated within the first 100 to 150 years following 1492. Within 50 years, following the contact with Columbus and his crew, the native Tayano population of the island of Hispaniola, which had an estimated population between 60,000 and 8 million, was virtually extinct. Central Mexico's population fell from just under 15 million in 1519 to approximately 1.5 million a century later. Historian and demographer Noble David Cook estimates that in the end the regions least affected lost 80% of their populations, those most affected lost their full populations and a typical society lost 90% of its population. In recent times, it is estimated that the HIV epidemic in South Africa may have slashed their gross domestic product by 17% from 1997 to 2010 and COVID-19 is once again reminding us how fragile our economic, social, and political systems are. Diseases are an integral part of life on Earth, and as human beings grow immune to them, strains of bacteria and viruses grow immune to the drugs. Mutations are a constant phenomena, and the human population can never be completely shielded from plague and pestilence. Despite their destructive forces, diseases and pandemics have shaped the history of the world as we know and continues to shape it to this day. The Roadmap to Lift the Lockdown 
Coronavirus or COVID-19 is not the first instance when India faced a pandemic. Before COVID-19, India had encountered several pandemic and epidemic outbreaks of influenza, cholera, dengue, malaria, and smallpox. While we were able to eradicate some, others continued to pose a significant public threat. Lack of sanitation, inefficient healthcare systems, and malnutrition are some of the recurrent causes. The tropical climate and seasonal rains create suitable environmental conditions and facilitate the spread of vector-borne diseases. In India, the 21 days national lockdown, which began on March 24, has involved closing workspaces, shutting public transport systems, shutting educational institutions, severely curtailing movements, and forbidding gatherings, and instructing all citizens to stay home. But effectively implementing a shutdown in a country of over 1.3 billion people from diverse socio-economic conditions comes with its own set of challenges. Overcoming these challenges calls for coordinated, scientific, and empathetic action by government across the country, even as we throw everything we have at controlling the virus. However, we also need to think about future challenges and problems that can be faced by the country due to this lockdown. For that, we need an exit strategy, which will simultaneously protect our well-being and bolster our socio-economic conditions. Here are some steps for the smooth functioning of Indian people after lifting up of the lockdown orders. To continue utilizing public health resources to the fullest, which includes more testing. to curtail the spread of covid-19 and ensure that the infection rates stay very low at the same time we need to recognize that the virus could probably linger in pockets for some time to come therefore we must be part of global effort to develop preventive vaccines or medicines that treat covid-19 also the financial support of the governmental attention to the improvement of public health is urgently necessary India needs to view public health not as crisis management but as a long-term priority. To launch an awareness campaign to educate people more about the effects of the viruses and its symptoms and the methods of avoiding infection by sanitizing and maintaining social distancing. However, it is not entirely possible to change the behavioral pattern of 1.3 billion people at once. but the government has to try to promote these awareness campaigns to the best of their abilities the lockdown order should be lifted gradually and cautiously and in a steady manner this is important to ensure there is no immediate resurgence of the virus from the increased social interactions rapid and uncontrolled uplift of lockdown orders will possibly result in an upright surge of infected cases and endanger the indian population at large to control this the indian government has to take steps cautiously steadily and with informed planning and protection the pandemic's impact on the global economy is already being felt some of us can work from home but india has millions of people who do not have that option so in the weeks ahead it's important to consider reopening key sectors of the economy with strict physical distancing hygiene norms and other controls in place this reopening has to be carefully planned and even more carefully executed 
the government should also seek for the one health approach as an integral part of our public health strategy this involves recognizing that our health is connected to the health of animals plants and the environment that we share it therefore emphasizes that effort to prevent diseases should focus not just on human but also on animal plant and the environmental health we really can't afford to ignore this idea given that SARS-CoV-2 is believed to have animal origins. To end this episode on a positive note, I'll quote a line from Camus' terrifyingly prophetic novel, The Plague. What's true of all the evils in the world is true of plague as well. It helps men to rise above themselves. Albert Camus. Thank you. Before we conclude, we would like to thank all members of the committee who have helped and supported us through this venture. If you enjoyed listening to our podcast, consider following us on twitter.com slash and on Facebook at www.facebook.com slash The full transcript of this episode of the podcast can be accessed at its official Medium page at www.medium.com slash il-legality-podcast. Thank you everybody and please stay tuned for details in our next episode.